Welcome to Global Entrepreneurship Week. I am Rob Richardson, host of Disruption Now and founder of Disruption Now Media. It is my honor here to uh, have this esteemed panel with you. So with me is Dr. Whitney Gaskins from the University of Cincinnati. Notice how I said D because I'm from University of Cincinnati and I'm going to claim Cincinnati like that. And then we have Ann Ritchie with the Mezzanine Fund. We also have Aja Hardy uh, with uh, G Beta Cle uh, Cleveland Accelerator Program. Uh, we also have Carlton Collins with Engines That Work. And we're going to have a great discussion about what the American dream means, uh, how we define it, and how we can really make the American dream and I, more of a reality for more Americans. That That's the conversation we want to have with you today. And we're honored to have such an esteemed panel from all around this great state of Ohio. Well, some people don't claim all the way the state of Ohio, but they're in Ohio. So we're going to claim them. So I'm not calling out any names, Aja, but it is what it is. All right. So, uh, you know, I think about the American dream for a minute. I looked up, I just kind of looked up the definition and it's, and it's essentially saying equal opportunity for anyone to be able to achieve their highest potential. That's what the American dream is. But uh, I think uh, no one here is under any illusion that the American dream has not been an equal access of opportunity for people in America. Uh, certainly hasn't been historically true. But let's start with how you would define the American dream uh, internally. Do you agree with that definition or do you have a different definition? And we can start with Whitney. Yeah, I actually do agree with the definition. I might add to it, but I don't. I think at its foundation, mm -hmm. it would be the American dream. Now, is it a dream that's a reality or even achievable for all people? I don't think so. I think we have too many barriers in place uh, for people, especially when I look at black and brown people to achieve it. But the only thing I could honestly add would be a maybe a sentence about being able to live authentically in as well. So not only getting to a certain of living success and whatever that means for you, but also in that success being your authentic self. Yeah. You know, Aja, we had a, we had a conversation off camera, you, my, myself and Carlton about the black college experience and what that does, I think, to actually further encourage the true, the true possibility of the American dream by getting rid of some of the things that America teaches you to be either by accident or by intention or just by the, 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 the system as, as, as how it really works. Talk to what the American dream has meant to you personally in your experience and how you feel about it. Yeah, I can start off. Um, yeah, so I, I agree with the definition of the American dream and, and the addition of authenticity. I will say that um, I think I shared with the team before that my mom's an educator and, and has been for quite a while. And when I decided to go to an HBCU, um, I had already like the second half of Harvard and Princeton filled. And I decided that I wanted to to go to, which I ended up going to with Xavier in Louisiana. And my mom, we really had a very contentious conversation about me going to an HBCU, especially since I lived across the street from University of Chicago, um, which is obviously a well-known institution. Um, and her response to me saying, hey, you know, I want to do this. I want to be with my people. She was going, that's not the real world. Which is the and, response? I mean, Aja, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's the response of a lot of people. They're saying, "Well, why would you go into an environment where it's not going to be that way? You're going to be in an environment where you're not going to be the majority. You're going to be hot. It's going to be hostile." But what did your experience show you, though? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my experience showed me that 
I felt a sense of a sense of self when I got there. I mean, you know, to to give like some to temper some background. I'm from Chicago, and those are really uh, that are known of the educational system in Chicago. We have a a lottery system as well as an ACI system, what we call accelerated kid system. And so I was one of those. So I started high school when I was in seventh grade. So I always have particularly been one of those individuals whom was in. Uh, I was, you know, one of few, if not like, you know, the only in the classroom setting. So I didn't quite understand why my mother would want me to continue that path, um, you know, going into my secondary education in terms of colleges concerning universities. So it really was like, uh, you know, you could go that path and I could have went to, you know, a private institution in that sense of the word, but I, I did the complete like 360, obviously. And I saw that, you know, with, with me, ex- ex- uh-oh, there you go. Can't see me. Okay, I saw that with um okay, sorry about that. I saw that with me in particularly, um I, I got to see people that looked like me and also more than more specifically for me, I got to see people who challenged me. Cause I mean, though you're accelerated and all that good stuff, you know, the terms that they gave you when I was in Chicago, when I got to Xavier, um, there were other people who were as smart or if not smarter than me. And and I really had to work. You know, and then Xavier in itself was such a thriving institution. We we did not like the vocabulary test every week, but I can tell you that majority of us we just speak like this now. And and I've heard like in my you know other uh, you know places that I've in my employment, you know, I've heard people say, "Well, we get it. We know you're educated. You don't have to use such big words." But that's because of Xavier. <laughs> like right, Xavier right. Xavier has us doing. We, I can tell you what a peon is. I can tell you what an econ clot is because that Xavier made us do that, right? So it really was one of those thriving environments and I, I value my time there. But there's something to be said about being around people that raise your expectations. You, you, your mother's response to you is probably the response I would have said 20 years ago too and the response that we are conditioned to accept. It is something that we're conditioned to accept and we're and you get, and you get a better environment because- you're in an environment where people expected more of you versus in an environment where people expected the worst of you, which is which is the environment that whether we say it or not, that's the environment we we, we are actually in. Uh, I want to go to our, to to, to uh, I want to go to Carlton in a minute, but there's one point I want to make. Uh, I, I just got through rereading the autobiography of Malcolm X, and and there was one point that actually my story reminded me of Malcolm X. Just this one point when a teacher is eighth grade. It happened to me in eighth grade too. His eighth grade teacher told him uh, he, he told his eighth grade teacher that he wanted to go to college and be a lawyer, which if anybody that's listened to and read him, he would have made a phenomenal lawyer. He just he had the, just na- that natural skill set. Of course, that person killed his dream, said you need to be pragmatic. And he really took a route to didn't need, he didn't focus on school anymore and took a very different route. Uh, obviously, he still did great things. But, you know, my counselor told me something very similar. And when you when you're used to being underestimated, you can sometimes rise above it, but that's not always the best for you. And being in an environment where you're being uplifted does help you achieve the American dream better, as you know, which is it's no accident. I can I can say this, Carlton, that people that go to Morehouse, Spelman, and some of these uh, uh, you know HBCUs tend to do better, not because they're smarter, but just because they learn to work together and they learn to challenge each other and push each other. So what do you think that, Carlton, will – how can we grow from that and learn how to achieve the American dream a little bit better? Um, I think it's it's kind of twofold, right? There's two things that, you know, that were ingrained in us uh, 
from the moment we hit the campus, right? One was that iron sharpens iron. Nobody cares about your accolades before you got here, right? Like, because the, the person next to you or to the left and to the right, you know, they were valedictorian or star player or, you know, that kid, you know what I mean, in their community, their high school, their city, right? Um, and then the other thing was, you know, uh, got my brother's back, right? Um, they wake us up at, I don't know, four o'clock in the morning and we get the history of campus. They give us a tour, you know, they, they literally drag us out a bit. And, uh, you know, there's that conversation about, you know, we are here together, right? We are going to survive um, and thrive here at this HBCU and we're gonna get across that stage as a unit, right? Um, and that being instilled in us from a, from a very, like from the onset, right? That's a new student orientation. Right. You know, that becomes a thing for us where, um, you know, and then, and then I, I took a very, very deliberate approach in understanding that, you know, some of these guys who say they want to get these things done, they're actually going to go off and accomplish them. Right. So I need to have a network. Right. And they also say you pay for the name of the network when you go to HBCU. So it's, um, you know, it's really important that, you know, as we look at the American dream and as we look at, you know, what are those things, what are those critical elements um, when we're talking about the American dream, right? Um, we have to understand that there are various access points. There's various ways to get to the American dream. Um, and there's also a number of ways that the American dream can be subverted, right? Um and there isn't that equity piece. Um, I, I love the words of authenticity around it. Um, but the only thing I would add to the definition is truly that there there has to be an understanding that, um, you know, it's not equitable application in terms of the pathway to achieve it, right? And, you know, we have to be able to have an intentional conversation about, you know, what does that look like? Um, for different folks, and and then also understanding, you know, we have a, a, an amazing opportunity. Um, I think right now in the world and what it looks like to be able to, um, you know, just radically redefine what the world looks like. And I think we get an opportunity to redefine what that American dream can truly be for all Americans, um, kind of as we press forward into this brave new world, because nobody knows what 2021 looks like. Oh, yeah, <laughs> shooting. <laughs> preach, brother, preach. We don't we don't know what the next week is going to look like. Uh, for sure. That's neither here nor there. I'm not going to go too far down that rabbit hole. But I will say, <laughs> and uh, when you think about where we are here, um, how do we, first of all, do you agree with the definition and do you have uh, uh, anything to add to the definition? In addition to that, what needs to be done now on the ground practically uh, for, you know, for the black community internally? And what what do we need to do externally to get more partners to move towards a, a real a real place of equity, not just talk like, OK, you said Black Lives Matter. Congratulations. I'll give you a standing ovation kind of really slow clap. Now, next, what are we going to do to actually make the American dream more of a reality for the black community? That's a lot. So um, <laughs> I'll start with the definition. Um, I would say I, I agree with the definition. For me, the addition would be trust. Because um, if 
if you don't really trust that the dream could be a reality, then you get into, um, then it really can't be your reality. Um, I hope that's not too heady. And then also choice, I think. Um, and with choice comes the security that you can make choices, um, you know, things like health insurance and all that kind of stuff that we worry about, it inhibits our choices. And so, you know, to really realize the dream, you have to have that. I think you have to have the trust, the security and the ability to choose what your version of the American dream is. Um, I have to sneak in my HBCU story because I did not go to an HBCU. Okay, so you have an office, another HBCU. Oh, you have you have a story too. So I got here's my story. So I was I'm the youngest, so I was always a disruptor. I was the youngest of four, um, and we were an Ivy League family, different generation. So my sister and brother went to Dartmouth. My other sister went to Cornell. So naturally, that's where I was supposed to end up. Um, but when I found out that that the Ivy League was really a sports league. That's what it started from. You can't join it. You can't get out. It's set from the beginning. Um, and that they were all male schools. I was like, that doesn't work for me. So I went to Smith, which is in my version, the women's version of an Ivy League. And I thought I had, I mean, I had a great experience. Um, I loved it. And I thought I had, I had my choice. I had my trust and it was, it was a great experience for me. And then um, tried to push my daughter there. She's like, no, having no part of it. And she ended up at Spelman. And the day uh, the day I drove her in to move her into Spelman was the day my uh, dream of Smith kind of got crushed a little bit because you layer on this, you layer on the all women thing with the sisterhood of an HBCU or an all women's HBCU blew my mind. I mean, it was seven in the morning. It was like hot as ever. We had to move and they're playing music and there's people dancing and they're welcoming you. And it was just like, I, it wasn't until that point that I realized the value of an HBCU because Smith gave me so much, so much of that, but not last piece. Yeah. I mean, they can't give that to you. That's not something that can be can't, provided can't by Smith. I well, mean, but before that, before that experience, I was totally happy with my Smith experience because right. it was it fed that woman part, right? But it right. could not get that last part. So I am a total complete convert now. Um, but it just wasn't. I, I it, it wasn't an option for me because it wasn't in our family and it wasn't in our. Um, you know, we. I just didn't know a lot of people, so I, I'm a convert. I would say. Um, to the last part of your question, I think, um, I think we need total disruption at this point. Um, and I mean, total amen to that. Well, you know, um, disruption now. So disrupt, disrupt away. Go ahead. Okay. Exactly. I, I mean, and I'm I'm a disruptive person by nature, but you know, we need to take, we need to seek data that is not the data that someone else tells us we should be looking at, but what we know we should be looking at. So the concept of lumping minorities in one group, I don't want to read any more reports about minorities. First of all, we're not minorities. Nobody's a minority, right? So right. secondly, I think once we seek that data, we need to follow it. And there's no time to, I don't feel like we have the time to convert people or to suck bias out. I think we just need to get the data we need and go with it and not to be too radical or too separatist, but 
um, you know, it will take too long to convince other people that we are, we can outperform and we can outsucceed. I we, need to we, get, get the data, show it and go with, go with what we know. Well, you know, I, I think that's a great point in that, you know, there's nothing, when I talk about, I say black and brown, I, I specifically say black and I say it for a reason. And, and there are people that say, well, and I think we've been hesitant to say things like we're including the black community. And that has also held us back, as, as you said. And, um, and you know, I'm going to give my inner Malcolm X here because that's, that's, that's new on my brain. But the point is making sure that we're intentional and not, and not because if we don't, I say, if we do not say and include black, we are excluded. <laughs> so it's not about being exclusive. It's about making sure we're included because I'm sure we can go get the data and we can show it. And we're not being excluded because we don't have the ability. We're being excluded for whatever reason, but, the, but we have to make sure that we are included and that's the reason why we say it. And I think, and you look at every other community, you know, I'm, I have a lot, I have a lot of background within, uh, within the union movement. And I can tell you this, uh, the Irish community, uh, the Italian community, they don't apologize for organizing and helping each other. They don't apologize for investing in each other. They do it and no one questions them. But when African-Americans do it, and even, even ourselves, we look at ourselves, well, we got to make sure we're not doing that. And I think for us to achieve the American dream, we have to, as you say, be comfortable making others uncomfortable, being uncomfortable and disrupting this narrative and this pattern, this construct. Carlton. And, oh, I had one quick oh, Go ahead, Anne. And then, no, go just ahead. One if you look at how much further women have gone because the data was clearly about women. And now when we look for data and empirical evidence that we outperform, we don't have it because it was never measured just for black people. Yeah. Yep. So that's right. White women. Yeah. And and I, I mean, I think I think and you started um, kind of going down this road. You mentioned it and you said, you know. This this idea that we're a monolith. Right. And we heard it in terms of like the context of HBCUs. But, you know, there was every socioeconomic status, you know, every type of experience we had. You know, one of my closest friends, you know, they still do farming. Right. Um, and, and got into agribusiness. Right. So there's there's so many there's a wealth of, of experiences that come through HBCU. But more importantly, when we're talking about data, when we're talking about the analysis of the black community, like it, we have to challenge this ongoing trope in which, you know, we're caric caricatures of ourselves. Right where, you know, it, it has roots in entertainment and all of that piece. But, you know, I think it is it is transitioned to all industries and all fields of endeavor where we're looked at as if, you know, we can't be different. Right. Um, like we like our individualized experiences don't can't create its own mosaic or own tapestry. Right. Of, you know. And and kind of specialties, right, that, that we fit in, right? We have these different lenses. Um, and I think it's just really, really important um, to just note that, right? Yeah. And to for all of us, you know, who are in these spaces, who get in these spaces who are Black, like, you know, push back on that narrative. Exactly. You, know? you, you mean like, you know, we don't have to all be athletes. We don't have to all be entrepreneurs. Right. We don't have to be uh, entrepreneurs. They don't see us as entrepreneurs. They see us as either mm -hmm. athletes, entertainers. Now, I happen to be 6'5", and I'm in pretty good shape, you know, but I'll say this. Everywhere I go, 
Everywhere mm-hmm. I go, everywhere I go, at every single moment, it's where did you play basketball? Who did you play basketball for? And when I tell them I didn't, some people are like, no, that can't be true. Like, uh, are you sure? <laughs> like, I get, I, I've gotten pushback. Are like, you sure? Yeah, <laughs> like I'm pretty sure I didn't. Like I'm just saying. Like, so, but and then, and then when I tell them I'm a, I'm actually I graduated engineering law, this other stuff. They said, oh, okay, and, and the puzzle goes over their face. They're like, what a waste. They're like, oh, you should have played basketball. <laughs> right. <laughs> you could have made the league for sure, right? <laughs> exactly. I think, the, I think one thing I added, everybody added to the definition and I didn't, so I feel left out. So I think to add to the definition, as we were talking about um, authenticity, inclusion, racial inclusion, uh, right, racial equity and inclusion, the idea of it, you know, having some empirical data behind it, um, real world evidence that marks with us. I would add the other piece is that it should not be fashioned in a capitalistic society format. And what I mean by that is that um, if I had to think about like how Chicago came to be and everything, I remember when I was leaving in 96, 97, the first thing that they shut down when they cut funding for us, for just Chicago in general, was the trade schools. And I knew so many people in my neighborhood that came through those trade schools that ended up being like union electricians. My cousin to this day is a union electrician and he's younger than me. So, and it was now, you know, it's a coveted role, but to your point about, um, you know, economic or communities, if you will, racial communities staying together and being together. I mean, like we're like Chicago's the epitome of that. If you wanted to go through our politics and everything, um, that, that was the first thing that they cut was the trade schools because Essentially, so many of us were actually becoming middle class and upper middle class off of that trade school, you know, situation, right? And and college isn't for everyone. I, I am not no. at all, you right. know, that uh, person that's like, you gotta go to this and this is your path to especially it. Especially nowadays, yeah, it's very right. Different. Especially nowadays. And my mom, being an educator, she went into it because partially that, you know, her counselor told her that she should either go into domestics like my grandmother at the time, or she should be a nurse or a teacher, that that was her only options. And she was one of the first classes to integrate Loyola University in Chicago. And she was still told that. And so, you know, my mother saw fit to become a teacher because she wanted to help and make sure that people didn't get the same type of ill advice that she did. Uh, But in that sense of the word, you know, of her kind of going through that, you just you just imagine how many people were steered incorrectly. And then from that, you know, bringing it back to that conversation earlier on, um, I had to think about why was why was I being told I couldn't do certain things or why was there some hesitance or even that, like I said, you know, combatants. And it's really, truly because of my mom had these, you know, generational pains that had happened to her and that had shaped her idea of what she could and couldn't be. And I had the forthright and and blessing to physically help change that for her. Like she went out of the country with me first in her ever in her life because she was told that she shouldn't go out of the country and that black people weren't necessarily like her, you know, accepted, but she went out of the country with me and won't stop talking about it. And I make a sense to take her out of the country every year if I can, because, you know, I'm showing her the world that I thought and so that I, I thought I, that I could attain at that time because of the fact that she wouldn't allow people to hold me back when I was growing up. And that's great. It, so we've talked about the American dream in terms of understanding how we got to the situation uh, and viewing the American dream. We've talked about how we <clears throat> disrupt the narratives. 
and and along those lines and disrupting the narratives, when people, uh, the majority population thinks about the American dream, there is this, it's very idealized. It's like everybody can do it. It's there. And if you don't achieve it, there is something wrong with you. That's kind of the reasoning by default. Uh, how important, and this goes to anybody, do you feel it is as we talk about the American dream that we also put history into the context of the American dream? Because we know it's been limited for many, as you kind of discussed there, Aja, but everybody else, I kind of want to have a your input about the importance of history in constructing the narrative and making it possible uh, that the American dream is more is expanded to more people and provides more opportunities. Yeah, I would. I think that erasing history is literally the tool of oppression because it helps people feel like, oh, then there is something wrong with me because the stories that weren't told of how people actually created these systems helps people buy into a system that wasn't built for them. You will have to understand that you were never part of the system. It's not broken. It it works perfectly. You were never supposed to be included. Don't forget when the constitution was written, you weren't even considered a whole person. Like I think that people love to conveniently erase history because without us knowing where we came from, we forget about where we can actually go. Think of all of the wonderful things that black people have achieved. We are more than slavery. We were whole nations and still our whole nations in other countries. It's beautiful history. And we just, like the United States, I think, has followed suit even now, especially when I think about 2020 with our current president following exactly how the Nazi party did, using the news outlets to call fake news. The fact that people say fake news and it's part of our regular vocabulary is concerning because it's also another form of erasing history. I, I would love to talk more deeply just about that, but we're seeing it in action. Everything that's happening right now, we've seen before and we can see how it's destructive. And then also how it really changes people's mindset that they only think of despair. They don't see the prosperous side of everything because we've written it in that picture, in that lens. We can be prosperous once we know that we've done it before. Our people, and I'm speaking about Black people specifically, we are excellent. And it, it really does drive me crazy when I hear about how all we think about are obstacles. We have nothing yeah. but obstacles, I will say, when we think about how the United States is set up, but we're so much more than that. And we've still, and yet, with and the and yet with the obstacles, yeah, we still you. rise, and we've yeah. still come to points where we run. So I look at it like there, there's a saying that you don't you don't judge a person by how far they've come, but the obstacles that they had to overcome to get there. And you look at what has been achieved by Black folks and Black Americans specifically. It is quite amazing, and that's why I think it's important to know history, to know the to know the painful part but to also know the progress that was made despite all the pain that happened to let you know that as bad as it is now, and it is bad and there is bad conditions in some places. And I'm not, I'm not underestimating any of that, but I can firmly say that it was worse and people were able to overcome. And that should give us some, 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 some sense of inspiration. If we actually remember who we are and what we've been through, Oz, you look like you want to say something there. So, sorry. You no, just, you just, just into the conversation. Engaged. Okay. I was like, Okay. Oh, no, I was engaged. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, history is history is always written by the victors, right? And and that's the, that's regardless of whom we're talking to. And so, if a person was truly 
knowledgeable about that whole sense of how just the human psyche works. And even if you're going through, you know, history class in school and you're like, oh, I'm reading about the Romans, but like, who wrote this? Well, the Romans did, you know, it's like, it's just, it's just that type of context. And why wouldn't that be applicable to our situation? It took me a while to, and a friend of mine told me this and I was like, wow, it kind of blew my mind, but it took me a while to say, to stop saying slavery and to say enslaved people. Cause that's yep. what we were. Yep. Yep. We weren't like our history didn't start with slavery. Yes. We weren't you know? slaves. We were enslaved people. There's a difference. We were enslaved people. Yes. And that has happened to several other racial demographics here. And so it's the idea of, you know, just separating ourselves from the context of the incident and not becoming the incident. Yeah. Um, think, because yeah. we're not that. I, I, that. That's a great point. I'll, I'll make a, a book to read, I recommend everybody to read, is a book called Why Nations Fail. And it's about, it goes through the history really of the world. And it really just gets rid of all these arguments that it's, look, cultures, I'm gonna get right to it. Cultures do not make you better. It does not, just because we're a culture, that's not the culture. It's the systems that are in place and the incentives behind that system is how one exceeds or goes backwards as a society. And I will say this, the most repressive ones, you look here. You look in the if you look at the United States, if you look in the South, you look in the South for all the years during slavery and all the years during slavery part two, Jim Crow, uh, they actually did worse economically. Why? Because when you have repressive economics and you're holding back parts of your whole society, you don't grow as much. My message to the American dream for the majority population, everybody else, is that the more inclusive we are, the more money everybody makes. So, you know. Carlton, and what is your what, what is your perspective on history and how we can help others? I think we got to be disruptive because some people don't like this conversation because it interrupts their feeling of this is perfect. You're you can achieve the American dream. You're making this stuff up because people have this image that's been built up that the American dream is achievable by anyone, everybody equally, and it disturbs people. They they think you're being anti-American, which I don't think you are. I think you're telling the truth and figuring out how to aspire better, I think is the most American thing you can do, but that's just me. Anyway, Carlton and what, 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 what either one, what, what's, your, what's your perspective? We can start talking about equal opportunity when we start at the same place. So it's even if equal opportunity opened up now, we're starting so far behind because of history, which again, they definitely hide from us. I went to uh, Shaker, which was a world-renowned integrated community, 50-50, steady 50-50 racially, even now, but none of the history that I've learned recently was ever expressed or told to us. And so it, it is bondage, but I'm all for equal opportunity. But to talk about equal opportunity now, I mean, after we do a little uh, repair or reparations, then we can talk about equal opportunity because we're starting from the same place. But even if I have the same opportunity as my neighbor, if I'm if I'm still recovering from years of economic imbalance, the opportunity is not is not attainable. Yeah. And Carlton, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So <laughs> it's important for us to to learn from history so we can figure out how to not have it repeat if it's bad or to learn from it and grow. And I think that that's something we need to really attach on to as we look towards expanding the American dream to everyone. What, what's your thoughts? Um, you know, one of my 
the the first thing is you know history is is the collection of lived experiences right and from that perspective like we have absolutely no reason to be arguing about the facts <laughs> of what happened <laughs> You know, which we're doing history. now, right? Right? right. People are like, right, right, right. like, we're arguing like so much. Um, we're arguing and, the sky is blue, or whatever. Or, or yeah, it's, yeah. It, go ahead. Exactly, and I mean the the facts that you know have persisted is one of oppression, one of imperialism, one of you know degradation, and you know stripping you know the melanated peoples of the entire world, right? If we're, if we're going back into European history and side note, I was a, I, my BA is in history. Um, and I had some absolutely radical professors down there at Morehouse, um, uh, who made sure I knew it. Right. But, you know, there's this, there's this like narrative, right. The, the revisionist history, um, that has become the norm and, and, we have to like readdress this this relationship of like we can't be arguing about facts anymore. Re- readdress the relationship to truth, <laughs> right? Well, not to, not the truth. <laughs> the truth I know, that's what just, I, I, I'm agreeing with you. Like people need to readdress their relationship and be comfortable with truth. Uh, yeah, ahead. exactly. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's okay, right? Yeah. Like not saying we're not telling. You know, when when you address the conversation of privilege, right, and we address the conversation of like the the system of advantages that. Um, you know, white people have had in this country, like you can't be mad at the fact that we're pointing out things that happened um, and are just here, right? Now, granted, if you can never acknowledge it, right? The, f- the first thing you do when you get in trouble, right? You fight your cousin and, you know, auntie done yelled at you, right? After y'all done had a timeout and maybe a whooping, the first thing they make them do is like, okay, what did you do wrong? What did you do wrong? Shake hands and, and we can move forward, right? So it's the same thing, but if you're never acknowledging just facts about, you know, what your ancestors have done historically to disenfranchise um, people who look like me, we can never move forward in that conversation. And it's not up to me to make that shift, right? It's up to you as that person of privilege who ha- who had you know those advantages to understand that yes you had them we're not gonna try to you know we're not telling you to empty your bank account but what we are telling you to do is be able to control your biases right and don't let don't allow them to impede on the progress of, of other human beings um, bias control is probably one of the greatest issues in you know America right now I, I think it is the issue. Uh, on one of my po- past podcasts, we had a we had a conversation about reparations and why people get so emotional about it. And uh, you know, one of the um, one of my panelists said, you know, some people would rather light their own money on fire than to give reparations. They rather put it up in flames because it's attacking their identity. That's how they people feel it because because the identity is tied to something that is not true. It's tied to a a, a past. That didn't happen the way that it was told, which is why I think uh, before we get all of this, people have to we they have to come to a reckoning. This is why I think we're at such a painful point for many, because when you have an identity built up in your head, uh, it is very hard for anybody to tell you something, even if it aligns with the facts. And then you layer that on with social media 
that can now put you in a world that you believe this truth. And it's even though it's false, you get reinforced every single day that, you know, this is not America. The American dream there. They are destroying the American dream. And I think that is very, very dangerous. So where do we go from here? I guess if there, if people are looking at. So we've talked about a lot of the issues. Where do we go to solve some of these issues to really make the American dream more of a reality for black America? Anybody could take that that right like he absolutely gave the very first step is the acknowledgement of the trauma that is actually withholding the american dream from so many without the acknowledgement of trauma we always see our band-aids and i call uh-huh. them band-aids so interventions uh, or systems put into place to help people that that's the reason why they're band-aids is because they're only going to work for so long and we see that over and over again when we talk about social reform, especially when we talk about our political system. So we put things in place and it works for maybe 10 years and then it it breaks again because Band-Aids can't last forever. The things Mm -hmm. that you need to do are get to the root cause of the issue. I'm an engineer. And so in our training, we're told to get to the root cause of the problem, right? But we don't ever want to use the training when when we talk about people, but it's the same thing. It's just messy. And we have to get okay with the fact that it's messy and it's complex in what we call wicked problems. And that is literally where we have to start. Stop ignoring it. Understand your history. Acknowledge that we have a problem. I think, and when people ask, well, what does that look like? It looks like people stop trying to gaslight the entire population and say that this thing didn't happen and that you're not getting what you want because of your own work ethic. That's not, none of that is true. So stop gaslighting everybody and say, hey, yes, this happened. It was a horrible situation that we had here for X amount of years. And we are now going to be dedicated to moving it forward. That's literally the first step. And when people ask, is there proof or have other people ever done it before? Yeah. Look what Germany had to do to recover. Look what Chile has just done. They scrapped their entire constitution and are starting from scratch right now. So it's not impossible. Absolutely. It's not impossible. It's painful, but it's not impossible. I I think about um, Malcolm Gladwell. I can't remember which book this is, but he went over an example of how uh, South Korean airlines approached uh, Koreans they were working with in order to change the whole culture. And they had to actually understand cultural legacies. So uh, they, they used to have one of the worst airlines. Now they're one of the best. And part of part of the approach was understanding is uh, how the culture was, how the culture is, and realities of how it got there. And there were certain things like, you know, if you, they, like grown men would smack each other if you talk back to the captain. Like that does, that's not going to work in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in that type of environment. But they had to acknowledge it. So they, they changed some things and now they're one of the best airlines. And I think if people really look at the cultural legacies in this country and understand it and, and have empathy, this colorblind stuff, you can throw it to the window because nobody's colorblind. Everybody's biased. So like it's 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 really having empathy because you're, you're colorblind. You're saying you're blind to everything that's going on. See us. See what's happening and look to be a partner in that. And then, I mean, that's how we start. But I do think there's also internally, what do we do now? I'm saying let's assume we get there are some genuine partners. What does the black community need to do internally to change things? Any other thoughts from any other any other panelists before we go to our last question? I, I mean, think, oh, oh, go ahead. No, okay. this is the HBCU thing right now. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'll just be really quick. I'm not even going to be, I'm going to be really, really quick. And I'm just going to add, like, and you go directly to you. Um, solely because of the fact that, like, we talked about 
first and foremost, you have to fix our house, but then also and like in, inside our house. But then also I would say, be conscious and aware of how your outside of your house looks like. And that's me coming from a global public health standpoint, because I've been in other countries and we are not looked upon as the best of light, regardless of, you know, what our skin tone is. If we are American, we are not looked upon as the best, as the best light here. And then I also, on the flip side, there's individuals that I've met because of what I do that have escaped their own circumstances in, in home country to come here and to think that they were going to get really and truly that's American dream to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That's the identity that we're, we're talking about. Let's like, let's pretty much claim it. Let's put the pin in it. Everybody feels that if you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, then you'll be able to make it here. And so, and that's the image that we actually portray and send out to the global space. And so when individuals come over here and find that that's not the case, that shift in itself really upsets our own American fiber as an institution because they're still here and they're bitter, <laughs> you know? So I just think the idea of like fixing inside your house, but also being very conscious of like the outside fencing and deciding and all that other stuff, you know, you're having curb appeal would be really conscious of us too. And we should understand that as a, as a black people as well. Sorry. Now I'll give it to you. Real quick. I think black America has, you know, we have our work cut out for us in terms of, you know, getting to a unified message and, and agreeing and I guess resetting the village's um, value system, right? Because we've adopted, instead of being communal as we used to be and what we were forced to be, right? We've taken on the individualistic characteristics that capitalism breeds, right? And I think we have to move back towards our natural selves. Um, but also just this understanding, right? That, you know, the most dangerous people, like, you know, in terms of the history of, of, you know, revolution, right? They were always unifiers, right? They found the similarities between people and they and they connected us, right? Fred Hampton, as we talk about Chicago, Fred Hampton had to die because he unified the working poor, you know, Latino communities, Black communities around this notion that, you know, America is not working for us, right? And we can unify together and create something, create a system that <clears throat> that works for the have-nots, right? Um, because I think one of the, the clearest things, and I think COVID has exposed this, um, in seeing, you know, there's always been this rise in the stock market, or and it's been you know, tied to American progress, right? And it's the first time Americans are doing worse, but the stock market is up. And I know it's dropped the last couple of days, but, um, you know, the stock market is not attached to the American people. It's not attached to like working America anymore, right? So I think we have a, a, an amazing opportunity as we talk about wealth inequalities. Um, and we think about Cincinnati with, with a preponderance of, of fortune you know, 250 companies um, here. Um, but, you know, we're always in the bottom 10 in terms of uh, income disparities. And we're always in the top five in terms of childhood poverty, right? So like, we have to start understanding that it's more of a system based on economics than it is a system based on race um, as, a, as a body politic, right? And then start moving in the direction of understanding, you know, what are the systems that we need to, to attack and, and, and try to address um, that serve us 
as a whole, right? And see what we can do to get past those those yeah. uh, those biases that exist. That stop so people. Aunt, go ahead, Gordon. Sorry. No, I said to just stop people from working with us. We've always been open to working with people. So I would say, like, you know, Carlton makes a lot of good points. To add to his points, what can we do? Because you're in the funding world. How do we also make sure that we are investing in ourselves? I can say what I can tell what the aim of disruption now. We're, we're, we're working to build an ecosystem and eventually a crowd investing platform where we invest in ourselves and our own businesses. Because uh, I do think that's part of it because we're not. Uh, some of it we do have less economically, but disrupting the trend that's happening, I believe the median black wealth in, I can't remember the, is it 2030 or 2040? I can't remember the year, but it's projected to go to zero. What is it? Oh, wow. Oh, okay. We go to zero. We go to zero. That's depressing. Go ahead. Finish. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. But so like, what, what can we, we do to, to interrupt those wealth, yeah. the wealth yeah, trends? We go, to, we, we go to zero in 2023. If COVID continues to do what it, I mean, 60% of black businesses are going to fail and entrepreneurship is the leading um, wealth changer for our people. So it's got to be as much as capitalism has its faults, it's got to be a priority. I, I agree. We just don't want the isms, no racism and sexism. Take the isms right. out. We'll take we'll the take capitalism. And I also think that the entrepreneurs that I meet with, we will take care of our own. When we get wealth, I, I we, we have adopted some non-village sentiment, but I think in general, I don't worry that capitalism is going to make us lose our core soul and all that. I think we help our own. Every business, every business person that I encounter that's African-American has a give back agenda with their business. Um, I think we need to be extremely independent and disruptive and understand, um, you know, the concept of pushing PPP through the SBA when the SBA has never funded more than 5% of African-American businesses, it's flawed. Um, putting money it. into micro-businesses and venture, it's flawed. Those are the two riskiest areas of business. And so they need supporting, but we also need to support some of those companies that um, build up the BE100. All of those companies came out of supplier diversity for the most part. And so we need to push P&G and we need to push um, all the Fortune 500s to um, invest in our businesses, give us more Absolutely. businesses and walk us in through R&D. Don't walk us in through procurement and give us a contract to clean your office building. Yeah. Um, yeah. Give us a contract to come up with the next polymer for your next um, resin. Amen. Um, Priest sister reach. Go ahead. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is just being extremely tenacious and slightly untrusting of some of the, the stuff that's coming out. Every single company is announcing they want to help black and brown businesses. Yeah. We need to push and make sure that it goes where we know it needs to go as opposed to where they say it needs to go. I love corner businesses. I love small businesses, but they make great photo ops for these corporations. Uh, we are not going to move the needle by having more um, sole proprietors. It's just the reality of it. 90% of black businesses have no employees. That yep. needs to change. We can't, we can't keep playing in the small end of the business spectrum 
And a lot of these initiatives are pushing us more towards there. So I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollar loan so you can stay in that risky. Let them run the restaurants. We'll go to their restaurants. We'll cook at home and we'll, you know, we're so marginalized in the business community that, and we're, and we're kind of falling for it. We're, we're all excited about all these companies that are willing to make a hundred thousand dollar loans to the local um, nail salon, which is, they need the support. I'm not saying don't support them. No, we can do both. We can do, we I can mean, do it, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a check the box approach. I want to, <clears throat> you, you've sparked a few things in me. I want to yeah. bring up here. <laughs> uh, one, I think it's a check the box approach and, and I don't know if I have the solution, but it seems like every time there's a let, let's, let's, there, there are two things people do. They do something like you said, and they come up with the diversity inclusion training and let me just tell you this: like, I'm not against diversity and inclusion training, but the revolution will not be brought to you by DNI. Like, and I don't. It's it's something that is <laughs> it is something that has been a check the box that we know that they can easily say like we have diversity and inclusion, which is nowhere part of the culture and the system. Like, how much are you investing in startups? How much are you? What does your corporate board look like? Like, I am. We have to really disrupt these conversations and and not allow us to have another check the box conversation at this moment. So this leads me to my fourth and final question. And one, uh, just one quick thing. Ahead, Look Anna. what happened in California when they said you have to have so many females on your board. Mm -hmm. Those those companies are stacking up their female board members yep. overnight. And so it's, it's hard lines like that. You know, it's not you have to have a diversity and inclusion program. No, you have to have five board members by yeah. this date or you don't get any funding. Yeah, you could, we could throw out your diversity. As far as I'm concerned, for most part, like most of these diversity and inclusion programs are just shows and- <laughs> And those programs can get defunded and they typically do in corporations. Yep. You know, speaking from someone who was like, why does this particular you know business resource group get like five thousand dollars but the ben black employment network just got a thousand for a year for like over a exactly hour. yeah <laughs> you know it's a, it, it's a check the box approach and i think it's nothing don't Go tell ahead. me what you value show me what you value and i'll tell you what you value like i can tell by your budget if your budget is and, it, and it's usually the least amount is usually in dni and and I'll even say this, like, because because my, my my mother has gone through this, being being in a, having her own firm, they often operate as a way to put you in a box to keep you from greater opportunities. So, I, I, most of the time, I don't even like diversity and inclusion. I tell people, if you ever see me, if I ever lead an organization, we're not going to have to have a diversity and inclusion. I say every time my reports will come to me and say, I will say, where are our measurables? If they're not there, they're fired. It's real simple. Like it's it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. It is simple. You know, it's it's also I'll add this. Any program that says we have to do 20% spend with a majority company, you're, you're requiring that those companies maintain that stamp or that brand of being diverse or minority or whatever it is. And so when they go to sell, they can only sell to another minority or they lose all their contracts. So it is it is across the board devalued the um, marketability of our businesses because we have this brand that we've got to stay to and we can't sell to anybody else. And if you can only sell to a small portion, your value goes down. Amen. Amen. Amen to that. Audrey, you like you want, did you want to say something before I go? Last oh, I just, oh I, I, no, well, no, I, you don't have to. I, I, so let, let me get the lead into the next question. Cause that might spark yeah. you and then I'll let, I'll let you go. Uh, so critical junctures in history have often, particularly American history, have, have either led to progress or regression. 
And a lot of people believe we're in a critical juncture right now. I'll give you an example of a critical juncture, obviously, the Civil War that we had. During Reconstruction, we had and still might be the most advancement we've ever had. But we know we went to a quick regression uh, very quickly. In about 15 years, we put slavery part two, Jim Crow, and that happened. Uh, then we've had other critical junctures, obviously, the civil rights movement and things like that. Where do you see this critical juncture going in the black equity, black lives matter moment right now? And how can we make sure that it goes in the right direction of progress? And without uh, go ahead, Carlton. I mean, I think it it, it goes to, to what Ann was saying about <clears throat> the accountability pieces, right, from particularly from government contracting, that's always been the way that has advanced black business. Um, but I think there's also, as we talk about the capital coming from these corporate companies is one thing, but there is a lot, there, there is a wealth of talent and expertise um, that can be utilized to help, you know, redevelop and, and, and reimagine, you know, struggling communities, right? And most importantly, for for some odd reason, right? Um, when we talk about history, you know, innovation and ingenuity came from us. <laughs> it is just a fact, and it's true, right? So from from that perspective, right, we have to be intentional about this process about the future of work, right? And we have to be intentional about understanding that the pipeline for the jobs of the future is woefully undersatisfied, right? Like, and it's been that way for decades. I understand the need for the Affordable Care Act, but I always felt there was an opportunity that was missed there, right, in, in 2008. Take all of those people who lost those jobs um, when the housing market crashed and that whole piece. Take all those people, retrain them for the jobs of the future, Right. And those jobs that went unfilled, we had two million jobs through the duration of the Great Recession. Right. That went unfilled. Like but there was no specific training program that that was working to get displaced workers. But more, most importantly, those pipelines that existed into these minority companies before the rise of everybody has to have a college degree. Right. Um, perfect example <clears throat> is in Lincoln Heights. You know, community of Lincoln Heights is the eldest black run municipality north of the Mason Dixon will be 75 years old um, next year. Um, I'm from there. Um, that's where we're, we're taking up our fight. But the first public housing was built by the Department of Defense for black workers for GE Aviation, which was right aeronautical plant back then. But they're building the engines for World War Two um, planes. Right. And that pipeline existed for 40 years and GE didn't maintain that pipeline, right? And granted, we're working tirelessly right now to rebuild it. And GE has been an open and willing partner in a number of different ways. But at the same time, how many other companies did that happen to, right? As we ship jobs overseas, we completely stripped that base, um, out of black communities as a as a step towards progress. Yeah, and not only that, you you I'm sure you already know this about Lincoln Heights, but they also took away a lot of its infrastructure, drove highways through Absolutely. it. I mean, they made it they 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 it became hard, nearly impossible to make it uh, to make it prosperous as a community. And mm-hmm. this is why when we talk about the American dream, it is tied to economics, it is also tied to politics. 
and it can't be the two can't be divorced. So the two are <laughs> interconnected. People don't like to have conversations about politics. You can't you can't divorce the conversation from 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 one another. They are intricately linked. And so I just wanted to say that because it, because, you know, unless we are actually aligned in that, uh, we're going to see those results play over and over and over again. Oh, for sure. Yep. And, that's an, and that's exactly kind of where, where we started when I was saying that, you know, our trade schools were closed. And I was seeing that as I'm going off to college in another area that individuals whom I went to high school with, you know, were that were saying, oh, yeah, I'm just going to I'm going to go into the trade. And now you, they can't. So then what do they do? Right. We're we're rapidly becoming in an area or a, a, I guess our, our era, if you will, you said a reconstruction era, like our new reconstruction era is an era that is not of brawn, but of brain. And what we need to do is we need to essentially, um, you know, you, you've seen, you've probably heard the studies of seeing the graphs that every, almost everybody else in the country has like surpassed us on, on, you know, our, our knowledge base and our knowledge curve. And since I was in high school looking at economics, um, we have always been the over the most worked but less productive of country in all of the countries, and that has not changed since 1996. So we're not we're doing something okay, but we're doing something wrong, and we need to really truly look at it as an overall, not just you know racial ethnic situation, but this is really truly like us as a whole that we need to work on because we're overworked, underpaid. And we're not we're not benefiting America as a whole in general. So if we the more politics money that we put toward, if you will, um, individuals looking at you know tech spaces and what can they do in terms of even uh, technology enabled manufacturing that we have here in, in Cleveland, like what how can we innovate what we currently have? Like how can you? essentially take what works and what you love about this city, about this, you know, state, even Ohio, and flip it on its head and say, okay, well, here's how we can make it better and still keep what makes us, us, but just innovate it so that it would be better and more efficient for everybody else. I mean, I think that's what every city needs to think about how they keep their homegrown and make that homegrown better. Yep. And some final thoughts here, and I'm going to go to the last two, and then we'll, then I'll, then I'll conclude. I think, um, and of course, I'm, I'm a capital person. I'm on economics. I think we, um, I always feel like the political has been emphasized and not, like you said, not coordinated with the economic. Correct. And that's a problem. I feel like even in the professional women's organizations that I'm a part of, there's a strong political agenda and there's no economic agenda. Yep. And I think we need to spend time on the economic agenda and really be strategic because the directions that we would be guided. Um, you know, we have tremendous entrepreneurial skills in our community. Um, if you can run a restaurant, you can run anything. Absolutely. It's the hardest business to run. And that's where- those By are the far. Right. And that's where we predominate. And so we need to take a, take a minute, a second probably, and really be strategic about the economic agenda and make sure that we are building for scale and sustainability as opposed to the moment. Because when times like this happen, everybody else is innovating and they're figuring out how to pick up our scraps when we fail. And so we need to, we can't get too hung up on the free money that's out there. Because the not as free, but go ahead. 
because it's it's kind of like welfare, right? It's not sustainable. And we need to take a step back and think, where do we want to be in five years? And what areas can we dominate instantly because of our consumerism? I mean, we yeah. dominate so many so many industries with our consumer behavior. We need to own them today and then work on the other ones. I, I, I completely agree. Become Use our consumer power to get more capital to us. Money flows through us, not to us enough. And that, that, I mean, I, I think that's a great point. Second point that I think you brought up is uh, that when we, we talk a lot about politics, but politics without a, an alignment with economics is <clears throat> just talk. It's just because you're not going to get anything else out of that. So there should always be an alignment in the conversation. And, and and people know this. Look, I ran for statewide office as a Democrat. I'm a Democrat, but I'm also I also understand that one must be strategic. And it doesn't mean you just say, okay, you vote for this this person, this party. You need to, A, you got to be bipartisan. You got to have both sides in order to make sure you contribute in some way. And B, you have to, no matter what, you have to know what you're going after and make sure you hold those accountable, be they Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, or whatever label you want to call yourself. We want to know what are you going to do to advance the agenda for Black entrepreneurship, for the Black economy, and not be afraid to have that conversation and hold anybody and everybody accountable to it whether you're a D or an R or whatever you call yourself. I mean, I really don't care. Uh, so it's like having that conversation and being intentional about it and really divorcing the emotion from whoever you're voting to say, okay, we vote this person, this person won. What are we going to do to push the agenda that we are looking for? And that has to be the conversation. That has to be the process of how we go about this if we are to improve it, because the two are together. Like you said, if you just vote for something, Vote for somebody. That's one tool that must you must do. And I do believe in voting. Please vote. Go out and vote. Make sure everybody, your mama, sister, cousin, brother, everybody votes. Then become engaged in the process to understand, particularly at the local level. Look, mayors, uh, city uh, city councils, commissioners give out a whole lot of money, a whole lot of contracts that folks don't pay attention to. And we need to make sure that uh, people that you're voting for give us opportunities. No one's trying to get anything. We're trying to make sure we're getting fair access and fair opportunities. Uh, let's see, Carlton, did we go to you last? Did we, did we go to Carlton? Then we go to uh, Whitney in final words. Um, and I, I think, for one, and like we're definitely going to talk after this. <laughs> but, um, you know, I really think, you know, black people have to continue to move on this path towards, you know, you know, self-love, right? Economically, right? And I think we're, we're starting to move in that direction, right? We're starting to, to wake up and understand that the systems that, that have been in play and have been operating are not built for us. Um, and I think it's, uh, we're at a critical moment. We're, we're certainly at a crossroads as a country, but we're more importantly at a crossroads as a people um, to understand, you know, you know, this idea of the the, the, the Du Bois versus uh, Booker T. Washington argument, right, that persisted for years, right? You're talking about this talents and tenth, right? Um, and the tenth, the, the talents and tenth were the ones who had education, right? But if you think about everybody Black in America that has some kind of post-secondary education of, of any kind, right, whether that's a trade, whether it's a skill, whether that's you just took over YouTube and you mastered a skill, right? You you got your ten thousand hours in, right? Um, and the fact that hip hop is the is the the 
number one music genre in the world, right? Where we now control our own narrative on a global scale. You know, we are centrally, um, like we're just situated to, you know, force these conversations, right? And bring those political folks to the table, bring those, you know, companies and economic, um, I guess, controllers <laughs> to the table. Um, and, you know, have a conversation with them about, you know, this is what we need for our people. And this is what, you know, you know, uh, self-sustainability looks like for us. You know, it had a definition before and you fought us on that. But now we're, this is a very, very different generation and we have a very, very different skill set. Right. Um, and I think it's just time for us to unify a line on on um i guess do that asset mapping of you know where our skills lie and then put together a comprehensive plan in each community each neighborhood block by block and and you know change the outcomes in our community and final thoughts i thought i went oh you went did everybody okay yeah, okay whitney sorry i was having more to give i will say this one thing <laughs> <laughs> that one thing um, and I'm a numbers person, so numbers like move me. 0.6% of philanthropy goes to black women. So that's 99.4% of the money that's going to fix our problems goes to people who aren't close to the problem. Mm, and yeah. that one just blew my mind because it I realized why philanthropy really has not helped us because Absolutely. the people that are giving out aren't even in the problem. And I would argue that 99% of the problems of philanthropy is trying to solve sits in black women's laps one way or another. Right. And the fact that we don't control the funding for it, it's just, it's again, and that's the disruption I'm talking about. That should be yeah. switched the other way where we control 90% of it, 99% of it. Yeah. And black women are the, I believe the leading demographic of entrepreneurs in this country. Absolutely. And with, and with venture capital funding, I want to say it's like 0.0006% of funding, 1% overall for black people, 0 .0, I think it's like 0 0.006% also, for black venture women. Venture capital, it's like, be careful what you ask for, because venture capital doesn't leave you with a black owned company. No, that's true too. It leaves yeah. you with that's a good one point. wealthy, wealthy black person, a whole lot of wealthy, wealthy white investors, and a subsidiary of Google. No, so that's we, a, that's an excellent point. I mean, that's <clears throat> which is why that. which is why we get to the point of you know while we're while we're doing the crowd investing platform, but we got to build the community first. So, yeah. like, this is a good start of people that's on here. Disruptionnow.com. You can come on there and join us. Uh, Whitney, final thoughts. Well, I'm going to go in a completely different direction and say the final thought for me is still centered around education and not necessarily higher education. But when we talk about why people aren't involved in the political system or even developing a, a political agenda or an economic agenda and understand economics, it's because financial literacy is ridiculously low in communities. And that's not just the black community. But if you it's hard to talk about money if you don't have it um, and to know how to make it work. And so we really need to have better education about what does financial literacy look like deeper than just bank accounts and budgets. We're talking about really what makes money. How do you grow money? What does investing look like? What does it mean um, that we don't talk about cash flow? Like how do you what what does that look like? 
At how do you all. talk about generational something else we've talked about on the show too, Whitney, to go with your point? How do you talk about money generationally? Like we we often don't like to have the conversation that people are going to die. So like, w- like, what are you going to do to make sure that, you know, you're not the last person to have money? I mean, I, I can tell you, I know this of so many black people, even very successful black people that have no conversation, no exit plan about, well, what does the generate, what is, it, what is the transfer of wealth look like? You know, Chadwick Boseman, God bless his soul, Didn't have did enough. not have a will and and was knew he was dying. And, and this is not to criticize him. This is to have a real conversation with us as a community. He's not he's not he's not unusual. That is something that happens because we are uncomfortable and not ha- haven't had those conversations about wealth. And then, then and then that wealth doesn't get transferred at the level that it should. And then we continue the same patterns. But go ahead. Correct. That would be part three. You should read that. That's like this. <laughs> That's the part three episode, really, of that. And I'm sure we could go. And yeah. Coming that. up next. There'll, there'll be some disruption. Right. You're right. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> It's coming. I was just, that's my final point. We need a better educational system on things that are Mm -hmm. really practical when we talk about how do we get out of our situations? What do the black and brown communities have to do? It's not that I don't agree with all of the things that were stated, but one of the biggest things is access to knowledge and how to use the knowledge in a practical sense. We we miss that piece largely because a lot of the knowledge isn't in in our community either. So you have to know somebody that knows how to do it to get to the knowledge and it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. Amen. So as a final point, thank you. I would say as a final point, the knowledge can be there. The the good news is we have to tell people how to get there because there's been more information than ever before, but sometimes it feels like people are less informed. We have to figure out how we get the information to them. And for every company that's out there, for every black company out there, I want them to understand two things. You are always two things no matter what your company is. You are a tech company. You are a tech company no matter what you do. Technology is a part of what you do, and it needs to be embraced in everything you do. Every, 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 every way you look at an issue, you need to figure out, is there a way to scale this? Is there a way to make it more efficient? Is there a way to automate this? And, and to not get to this process, I'm not a technical person. We need to divorce all those narratives and all that language because... Yes, you are. And even so on, quote unquote, non-technical people can make something technical. Just understand the problem and then figure out how you would solve it and map it out. And then someone can help you do that. Second, you are a media company, no matter who you are. And there's never been uh, an easier way to get your message out if you know what your message is. So always know you're a tech company. Always know you're a media company. And finally, as I talk about what we need to do to achieve the American dream, you know, Anne said it, it is about disruption. It is about innovation, and I have a I have a pretty unique definition of innovation. I think innovation is a rebellion against the status quo. It's not accepting things as they are and being willing to fight for that change that you seek. And there's and that's not going to be an easy path. It's not going to be a linear path. It's not going to be for everybody. It's not going to be for most people. You have to know who you're targeting, who your soldiers are, and move forward. That's how the greatest innovation innovations have happened, and that's how we're going to achieve the American dream. And I will say this to everyone, greater population, the more the American dream is achieved by everyone, the more American, the more the American dream will be achieved by all. So this is a conversation that's not just about black people. What's good for black people is also good for the American people. So until next time, I'm Rob Richardson with Disruption Now. It's been a pleasure having this esteemed panel on. I hope you enjoyed our conversation.